we're moving from an economy where the main issue, the main problem is producing more goods and services into an economy where the main issue is access to the goods and services. So the trough is large enough. How do the piggies share in it uh, <laughs> or will they be able to share in it? And I don't have an answer to this. I think the answers would be complicated. But my observation is that we're now moving into a distributive era. understood as an evolving system, an out-of-equilibrium ecology composed of agents that adapt to one another's strategies, how does this change the way we think about our future? By drawing new analogies between technology and life, and studying how tools evolve by building on and recombining what has come before, what does this tell us about economics as a sub-process of our self-organizing biosphere? Over the last 40 years, previously siloed scientific disciplines have come together with new data-driven methods to trace the outlines of a unifying economic theory and allow us to design new human systems that anticipate the planet-wide disruptions of our rapidly accelerating age. New stories need to be articulated, ones that start earlier than human history and in which societies work better when engineered in service to the laws of physics and biology they ultimately follow. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex system science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is W. Brian Arthur, external professor at the Santa Fe Institute, fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, and visiting researcher at Xerox Park. In this second part of our two-episode conversation, we discuss technology as seen through the lens of evolutionary biology and how Arthur foresees the future of the economy as our labor market and financial systems are increasingly devoured by AI. Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. Applications are now open for the 2020 Complex Systems Summer School, the Graduate Workshop in Computational Social Science, the 2020 Journalism Fellowship, and a postdoctoral position in scaling theory. Learn more at santafe.edu. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please help us reach a wider audience by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or by sharing the show on social media. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Well, I didn't start with the theory of technology. I started with vague ideas. Maybe combination was important. And I read and read and read 
a bit like Darwin running around the Galapagos collecting beetles or looking at iguanas. And I kept reading until I started to see common patterns. And I began to see that every technology had come into being as for some human purpose and as a combination of what had gone on before and what was used before. And then it joined the Lego set and uh, things could go from there. The interesting thing is that that means the economy is open-ended. There's no finish to technology. There's more and more (laughs) of it. And I do think it's moving rather faster because we have more means devoted to that purpose. It doesn't mean people are thinking faster, but it does mean, and doesn't just mean there's more to combine with. It means there's more resources going into that, uh, not just DARPA or government, not just Silicon Valley, but all over the world, huge amount of work going into it. It it seems like a strong parallel in the way that you felt you needed to expand upon and elaborate a sort of Darwinian thing with the way that this was actually going on at the same time in evolutionary biology, you know, in uh, the, I guess, exposition of the importance of horizontal gene transfer, you know, plasmid transfer, sexual recombination, endosymbiosis, and that the more we elaborate a post-Darwinian sort of extended evolutionary synthesis, the closer the dynamics of biological evolution get to the dynamics that you've elaborated for technological evolution. Yes, that's correct. I I would... I'm not not a biological expert here. (laughs) I'd put it maybe in simpler terms. What I would say is that for a great deal of evolution... Uh, Darwin's mechanism does a very good job, variation and selection, and and then eventually that speciates, so we get new species, fair enough. But every so often in biological evolution, combination plays a role. It does with the archaea, it does at a very fundamental level. There's horizontal gene transfer. I understand it does uh, to some degree in uh, bacteria and it does with the rise of the eukaryotic cell that's combinations uh, somehow that uh, invaded a simple cell and I'm glad to say that I met a new uh, uh, Lynn Margulis and I I knew John Maynard Smith and I'm good friends with Ursh Satmari uh, who uh, these are all I'm name-dropping, but it's not not so much for the sake of name-dropping. I find it very important in science to know the people who've had the ideas for a very simple reason. You realize they're human beings. <laughs> that um, You realize I met uh, John Maynard Smith in the Arctic way in the north of Sweden. I realized that he had been an aeronautical engineer these are things that help in the somehow they help in in the (laughs) realization that they're just normal human beings and maybe and you're a normal human being and maybe there's hope for you to do something (laughs) I'll tell you a story about John Maynard Smith if I may please use it or not you know but but it's, it's kind of fun 
So I think the years about 1995, we're sitting in a weather station a couple of hundred miles north of the Arctic Circle in a little place called Abisko. And it's a conference on evolution. And um, I knew John Maynard Smith was uh, part of a small group of 20 or so of us. He hadn't appeared. And then the door opens and in walks this older man uh, with longish hair, gray hair, uh, and with, I, I could tell he was English because he wore national health glasses. And I made an awful lot of inferences, uh, Sherlock Holmes style. I went, hmm, probably he's been very left-wing. Probably he went to Oxford. Probably <laughs> socialist, probably, because it's a type. I recognized him immediately. I liked him. Uh, lovely person. He started to lecture on the major transitions of biology. And then, being quite English, you know, he says, now we come to a rather a puzzle. He says, we have to ask, why is there sex? And so I'm sitting there. This is not <laughs> something I know much about in, in biology. We have to ask, why is there sex? After all, he says, sex might be good for the species as a whole, but not necessarily good for the individual. So I stuck my hand up and I said, I'm from Ireland. I stuck my hand up and I said, isn't that very much an English view of sex? <laughs> <laughs> he looked at me for the first time and he said, well, he said, I can tell you're Irish. And at least in England, we do have sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that gets at the whole the, the whole issue of uh, at what level are you course training the model, right? Because it's like this, it's the, the, you know, the, he was growing up in, in a time when the, the notion of multi-scale selection was very hotly contested. Yeah. You know, and so now to view an evolutionary process as something that's occurring at multiple scales simultaneously, yeah. you know, th this question of the origin of sex is very, very similar to the question that uh, David Krakauer and Martin Nowak were writing about that brought me into this, this study yeah. of the evolution of intelligence more generally, yeah. you know, how, where does syntax come from? Yeah. You know, the idea that the, the, like the sentence is uh, an adaptation to the complexity of the environment reaching a point where it's no longer effectively described by single word utterances yeah. that it, it's it's a way to route around an error catastrophe yes and so you know this this notion of as you talk about uh in the nature of technology that each new each technology creates new opportunity yeah. niches yeah. and so that you know there this is a, an example where it's like there there there's a top-down effect yeah. generated by a, a, doma a domain yeah. or a technology on all of its sub-components. Yeah. And that, you know, that, uh, that sex and language and the, you know, the, the recombinant M strategy. Organisms. Yeah, that all of these things are 
seemingly a, a response to the increasing complexity of the environment that is endogenously generated by yeah. this expanding, you know, like you, you mentioned Stu Kaufman talking about uh, the adjacent possible. Yes, endless, right. You know, this, yeah. that it's this non-ergotic above yeah. the level of atoms yeah. in his yeah. language. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is this question of like, is it is it possible, uh, as it seems, uh, from where I'm sitting anyway, that the reason that the evolution of technology looks different to us is yeah. simply because it is the dominant evolutionary strategy at work on the planet now, now that we have mm -hmm. accelerated yeah. this process as yeah. much as we have that, you know, and that we, we, you know, that we went through these periods, like yeah. where you, the regulatory structure of a complex organism sort of inhibits that kind of yeah. recombinant yeah. innovation from yeah. within the organism, but yeah. then you get sex yeah. and then you get social learning yes. and so on. Yeah, yeah. What was the question again? Then I don't know. I'm just okay. like I just uh, that's that's just sort of a fanboy. Like, what do you think of this <laughs> okay. kind of? You know, uh, well, I tell you what I think overall, and I'm kind of pulling back a little bit from the from the particulars here. I realized. Uh, let me say something that's not particularly modest here. <laughs> yeah, this is after all, this is the Santa Fe Institute. So, um, I realized that there might be, or there were, two mechanisms in evolution um, that were quite different. One was standard variation selection. Certainly there'd be mutations or recombinations and some sort of genome maybe shuffled a little bit. And there'd be variations, as Darwin told us. The other mechanism I decided to call combinatorial evolution. Again, a label I <laughs> arbitrarily stuck on this area uh, in my book. And that would be that uh, individual pieces or parts, whether this is in technology or indeed in parts of, in parts of mathematics even, uh, think of things like theorems, uh, new theorems are constructed by combining old ones with syntax and mathematical logic and grammar and so to give new statements that uh, might be proofs or, or conjectures even. Uh, or in biology, as you were talking about a moment ago, at all these different levels. And so there was a second mechanism. And the second mechanism is that existing parts in some or other can combine. And then uh, some of those combinations, one or two, are, turn out to be successful. And so that combination then is encapsulated and becomes a new element. Uh, for example, um, gene sequencing. The time of Sanger and uh, people like that uh, 50 years ago or more, to sequence uh, the blueprint for a protein like insulin uh, would take days and it would take multiple labs and it would take all kinds of equipment. Now gene sequencing has become an element that is used in other technologies, uh, such as forensic DNA policing and things like that, 
and now it's some capsulated, you know, fairly small piece of apparatus that maybe you could purchase for a high school lab or something like that. So I began to see this again and again. Um, the bottom line here is that um, I wrote all this in the nature of technology. Oddly enough, people were interested in that book because it was a different way to think about technology. But oddly enough, um, there's been a bit of a silence around <laughs> combinatorial evolution. Some people picked up on it and ran with that ball. Others didn't. Uh, the region of the world that's most intensely interested in technology and in that book, The Nature of Technology, is China. It's sold three or four times as many copies as <laughs> here in English. It's now into its second edition. And I think that the reason is that China sees its path forward as being technological and is hungry to learn how Westerners think about technology. My comment is that um, technology has always been a little bit of an orphan or ugly sister, or I should say maybe a Cinderella in the sciences. We take it for granted, we use it to get us to the moon, we use it in cell phones or in scientific instruments, but we don't wonder too much where it comes from, how it operates, uh, or how it evolves over time. And that was what fascinated me. Uh, my book has certainly stirred an awful lot of interest, but given that technology is extraordinarily important for the way we live, we certainly couldn't live without it, be it medical or housing or anything else. Um, uh, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more interest in the whole subject of technology. Yes, you know, certainly. I, I, let me just say, like, as a counterexample, intensely and lifelong, curiously, passionately interested in this, you know, and, and, and in large part because the question of combinatorial evolution, th this area seems to suggest to me that there is a, a generalizing framework within which the evolution of technology, the evolution of biology, can both be understood within a general theory of intelligence. And, you know, David Krakauer talks about this. He talks about the isometry yeah. of, you know, the, the congruence, I should say, of, yeah. of the equations for evolution and for inferential learning. Yes. And how, you know, you, you think about this in terms of, as you discussed, like all technologies are made from parts that are just sort of already lying around, yeah. you know, yeah. and that they're, they're a response to a uh, you know a need which you know I, we, we had Jennifer Dunn mm -hmm. on the show and listening to her talk about how food web relationships the structure of trophic networks are conserved you yeah. know from the Cambrian explosion to yeah. today it's yeah. the same the parts change yeah. but the the metabolism yeah, sure. seems to be the same yeah. and so you know this question of when you get into uh, what is uh, when, you, when you talk about a technology as something that is created to serve a purpose, to address right. a need, it raises this question of like, well, okay, wait a minute, back up. What is a purpose here? You know, yeah. because we exist within a situation where we we have, like you said, you can't invent the same things a hundred years ago that you can invent today. Yeah. You know, you place the same person in in both periods, and you yeah. get a different result. Yeah. And so, you know, in some sense, the purpose and need seem to 
to me anyway, to be properties of the network that we exist in rather than, you know, understood as, as properties of the individual. And you actually make you make a good case for this in this book, you know, mm. that you that it's you use the term originator rather than inventor because, you know, it's the the origin stories are are just painful oversimplifications of how how you know these these things come out of these distributed processes and sure. I guess yeah once again I'm just sort of like lobbing this one at you but like how do you what do you do you do you see these as ultimately commensurable from the perspective that you know that intelligence may be you know usefully reunderstood as a distributed phenomenon yeah. There are two different things I picked up here. So, uh, one is, you know, where do human purposes come from, or where, where do the, does the need for technology come from? If you're an economist, you'd say, I can understand how technologies get supplied, but wh where's the demand for them? Turns out that nearly all technologies, well over ninety percent, is my guess, come into being uh, for the sake of other technologies. So things like, um, oh, I don't know, a radar duplexer, it's, it's a circuit that switches off a radar machine instantaneously for maybe a few thousandths of a second so that there isn't a blast of radio waves and you can detect a faint echo. That was needed for radar, etc., etc. Many things are needed for uh, jet engines or for computers. So technologies demand further technologies, and occasionally we have our own demands as humans. If you discover something like Ebola, uh, then that automatically uh, sets up a demand for something like a vaccine to deal with Ebola. So occasionally it's direct human need, but most of the time technologies are brought into being to handle or manage or control or or improve other technologies. The other question you were mentioning was understanding and this, or intelligence. Uh, I, I preface it by saying that I don't know, uh, I've read an awful lot of psychology, but I wouldn't claim to be an expert here. So let me just point out one thing. If you are educated in mathematics, and definitely I was, uh, for many, many years, uh, up to master's degree level in my case, what struck me was that uh, what you're actually being taught is concepts that are defined in terms of other concepts. So you might have elements that might be digits or something. You can put them in rows and columns, and you have a concept called a matrix. And then with that concept, you can say, oh, we could do addition, which is a concept. And so we, or subtraction or multiplication, you're shown how to do that with matrices. But all the time you're building larger and larger structures out of simpler ones. And I began to realize, and I haven't thought about this, and this might be a good thing for you or David to think about who understand a lot more about this. I began to realize that much of understanding works this way. You're building novel concepts out of previous concepts. Uh, you do it in a wordy way. So a concept such as 
Munich, uh, which means uh, government sellout uh, for purposes of appeasing some unsavory character. Uh, that's a concept. And that you can encapsulate that in one word, then you can use that in other <laughs> concepts too. And uh, so it seemed to me, I don't want to be too much of a of a, uh, empire building here, but it seemed to me that this idea of evolution by combination uh, applies quite broadly when it comes to uh, building up concepts from previous ones or mathematics, from simpler mathematics and looking at ever different structures this way. Also, I'm fascinated that once you have such a toolbox, you can use it instantaneously in many ways. So if you have words, uh, you can combine those endlessly and infinitely um, uh, to formulate different sentences. Some of the sentences may have been uttered before, you know, I love you or something is probably, uh, we could reduce that to say number 23 or something and save ourselves a lot of emotion. But I think that, um, in fact, it was von Humboldt said that language was infinite use of finite resources. Mm. So that you're combining and recombining things out of this uh, toolbox. But the toolbox itself grows by um, using uh, simpler objects to create more complicated ones, encapsulating those, and you keep going. Uh, it's something that um, I think has been glimpsed here and there before, but I don't think it's been seriously written about. Not yet. So, you know, in your example that you just gave about Munich, as becoming you know, like the, the way that language trends towards shorthands yeah. or, you know, in, in mathematics, these complicated uh, conceptual structures get condensed yeah. into simpler and, you know, like to back out a little bit into the philosophy of science, you know, Mark Buchanan wrote a really great article for Nature Physics a while back about a natural, the natural bias for simplicity that yeah. J Jessica Flack shared on Twitter. And, you know, this, this, the Occam's razor thing is as simple as necessary, but no simpler, yeah. right? So, like, we see this in, in, in uh, intellectual systems, technological systems, biological systems, that there's a fusing of regulatory elements, right. you know, a, a trending towards greater efficiency, but efficiency within the context of adequate modeling of the environment, you know, yeah. actually serving yeah. the purpose for yeah. which it was created. And, and so, you know, I think about that um, to, to make a transition into your McKinsey piece. Oh, yeah, sure. That, you know, one of the things that when we ask, the, you know, this question about what is a need, yeah. um, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, Mel I had Melanie Moses on the show, and, and, you know, she's, a lot of her work was done on scaling and biology. Mm -hmm. And she and I talked about vascularization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that seems to be what you're, you know, when you say 90% of new technology is like in this, the components, you know, that that's yeah. really like 90% of, of your vascularization is in the capillaries. That's and so right. On, yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, that, that would again suggest that what we see as the necessity, the necessity that an invention fills yeah. is driven by 
this sort of global process of maximal entropy production, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that we get to a point where, uh, much like we saw in biology, that the the organisms get so big and so dimensional yeah. that they're no longer efficient at the production of biomass. Yeah. And then we have to come up with new structures to distribute the yeah, yeah. the nutrition yeah, and you know sure. the the yeah, oxygen yeah. and so on through the yeah. body. So this you know this was like glaring at me this yeah. morning when I was reading your your piece on McKinsey about the future uh, yeah. of the economy. Yeah. And this movement from production to distribution. And right. I, so I'd love to hear you um unpacking exactly like why why it is that you think that we're that this transition is happening right now like what what is the the big economic shift that that we're living through yeah. and, and what does it mean for us and, yeah okay yeah. i think the article i wrote in 2017 mckinsey quarterly was called uh, where's technology taking the economy yeah and you know when i look at what I meant by technology there, I certainly don't mean social media or cell phones. I was really talking about AI or machine learning or these uh, collection of digital technologies and where's the economy going with that. I want to uh, give two answers or two conclusions I came to. and One is that uh, practically all of these advances in AI, all the ones I can think of, are really nothing much more than associations so that if, if I have a camera and I am in an airport and get my picture taken and uh, the algorithms, whether they're neural nets or using deep learning or some other thing, those algorithms are making an association between the elementary pixels and they process and process them until they can associate them with one person based on a lot of measurable criteria. And so language translation by machine is an association. I give you a sentence in Mandarin, uh, you feed it into your computer, the computer looks through all sorts of similar sentences and associates it with one of those. It doesn't use very much grammar or syntax or anything. It's a real clunker. When it spits out a, a sentence, it's learned to associate with something very close to the original. So these are all associations. We can recognize faces. We can translate uh, speeches. We we can recognize voice and so on. That's as far as we've got. What I want to say is what we haven't got yet, as far as I know, we haven't got a machine that can read characters, say like Wind in the Willows or something, some classic book, and understand that. We haven't quite figured out what it means to understand that, but my guess at understanding this, uh, what we call reading is not just associating a sentence with some picture, a uh, phrase from Keats's Most Cottage Trees. And uh, I think he's describing paths through the woods in autumn or something. But immediately, anybody who speaks English has a mental picture of that. 
But you don't get full understanding unless you know a huge amount of context. You'd have to have been in some woods, maybe in England. You'd have to know what a cottage looked like. And so on, not just that I can associate cottage with some other word in German or in French or something, or Cantonese. In other words, machines uh, don't yet understand in some way that we would be happy to call uh, something a bit like human understanding. Anyway, so the first part of my answer is that we've developed a lot of technologies that are super good at recognition, and they can do practical things. For example, uh, they can... Uh, technology might be a little bit of a forklift truck with three-dimensional camera on it and connected to a computer that has sophisticated pattern recognition algorithms. The forklift truck goes automatically into some little pickup warehouse place, sees all these cardboard boxes. It can read the labels somehow, and it knows to pick up those boxes and load them into that truck and other boxes and load them into a different truck. And it sees some orange crates and recognizes that those are not cardboard boxes, etc., etc. So we've become very good at this. And in turn, what I'm realizing is that uh, this is not a very original thought, this next thought. Uh, economists have realized that uh, machines, computers, uh, algorithms in particular, so digital machinery is getting really good at figuring out things that we thought only humans could do. This is a huge surprise. We thought as recently, maybe as 15 or 20 years ago, that computers would be very good at logic and good at arithmetic and accounting and figuring out engineering solutions but we'd never be good at recognizing cardboard boxes strewn on the floor or uh, people's faces. Now they can do things that humans can do. And that's causing jobs, I think, to be replaced. And that's not controversial in economics. There are other economists thinking of Andy McAfee and, and uh, Brunholtzson, uh, at MIT, but many other economists have noted this and written about it and thought about it. But we're entering an era, you know, where's technology taking us? We're entering an era where these digital technologies are bringing us into, bringing into industrial use applications that previously only humans could do. We can sort things by label. Uh, we can sit down and talk to a client in a bank to figure out would they qualify for a mortgage. Now that can be done algorithmically and almost instantaneously. And so economists, and I'm in pretty firm ground here, are largely agreed that many, many jobs are getting replaced and will be replaced uh, almost inevitably by digital means digital algorithms, digital machinery. And so the big question in economics is, uh, will there be new jobs? And that's really where the controversy is. It's not the jobs are disappearing, it's that what's going to replace these jobs. 
Nobody's quite sure. Meanwhile, almost 100 years ago, well, 91 years ago, John Maynard Keynes wrote a famous essay. I think it was called Economic Prospects for Our Grandchildren. Possibilities. Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And he was looking roughly 100 years ahead, which is close enough to where we are. And he thought, and I think quite accurately, he thought there would be enough means, enough production to go around. He thought that he was talking about the UK, but he thought that uh, what would have been called GDP or GNP at the time would be about eight times larger. Not too bad an estimate. Uh, roughly, he's in the right ballpark, I'd say. So we have plenty of goods and services. And he thought there might be something he called technological unemployment. A few years before that, the concept of robots had been bandied about by a... a Czechoslovakian playwright and Keynes wondered there might be robots then and uh, and there certainly are they're not standing up ones but there may be machines like forklift trucks that are autonomous and so uh, there would be technological unemployment and what would that do to the economy so my conjecture is, uh, thinking about Keynes, thinking about artificial intelligence and automation and autonomous everything and the virtual economy, <laughs> the digital economy, putting all that together, I would make the claim that we're moving from an economy where the main issue, the main problem is producing more goods and services into an economy where the main issue is access to the goods and services. Um, so the trough is large enough. How do the piggies share in it? Uh, <laughs> or will they be able to share in it? And I don't have an answer to this. I think the answers would be complicated. But my observation is that we're now moving into a distributive era in the economy. We're not even that conscious of that yet. I don't think it's been said that much in the press. But that brings us into other issues it reflects in politics all over the place, not just in America, but in Europe, and in some degree in China and Asia, uh, where there's a feeling of unease about jobs, our ticket to the goods and services. We're uneasy about that in general, especially if we're blue-collar workers or white-collar workers. And it, we might think, well, we're not happy that machines are replacing us. It's, uh, we used to have an awful lot of offshoring or globalization, jobs going to China. Now jobs are going to the virtual economy, and that's just like sending them to another country. And that means paychecks are going to that economy and maybe going to Amazon or Google, not to uh, human beings. So there's a lot of unease. Uh, I think it's semi-conscious. But unease, how am I going to get by? How, am I, how are my children going to get by? We haven't had decades of wage growth like we used to have. We've had some wage growth, but 
not reflecting economic growth. And and so we're in a different ball game. We're, this is not Kansas anymore. We're in a completely different game. Turns out that in that game, economic efficiency is not important. There's tons of stuff to go around. So we will hear a lot less. I'm sticking my neck out. We will hear a lot less. Stick out. I'll stick my neck out there with you. <laughs> okay. We'll hear a lot less about, you know, sending jobs abroad or we'll hear a lot less about growing the economy and we're going to hear a lot more about jobs being created here and there, even if it's a trivial amount of jobs. We'll hear a lot less about trade deals where it'll be efficient to make shoes in, in, in Mexico and but not make them here. Uh, we're going to hear an awful lot more about uh, why should we send jobs to Mexico when we can keep them here. Uh, and so questions of distribution are coming to the fore. That's already changed the game in politics because all over the world there's a movement towards populism. Uh, I'll make sure you guys are okay. I'll make sure you're well supported. I'll make sure you have jobs if you... Uh, just hearken to what I'm saying, and I'll keep those awful foreigners out. And this is true in Hungary. It's true in Poland. It's the force, I believe, behind Brexit. We don't want all of... <laughs> we can't, can't have all these foreigners coming in, you know. And <laughs> it's like what they used to say about the Irish in 1850. So uh, we can't have all these people coming in. It's... It's not racism, it's not prejudice, it's not even completely tribalism, it's more a semi-conscious fear that we know there's enough to go around, but we're not quite sure we're going to elbow our way easily to, to get at this grand buffet that's possible. Yeah, so that the game has changed. That that same kind of fear is uh, to to bring up a topic that that was uh, caused great amusement at the symposium this weekend. Uh, uh, that same kind of fear is on display in the like OK Boomer oh, yeah. versus Boomer Pride, oh, you know, yeah. Jim Rutt's <laughs> Boomer Pride hashtag. Where the guys, where the guys are screwed it all. <laughs> I think that the racism, the populism, nationalism does seem to come in at the point where fear. It starts to erode our yeah. ability to actually devote the necessary cognitive resources to understanding the complexity of the yeah. issue. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really appreciate in, in this article you talk about, um, you know, that the situation makes unbalanced free market philosophy kind of increasingly indefensible. Yeah. Because, you know, what we're asking is, is really to view the economy as an organism or as an ecosystem – then it does require an understanding of the trophic network. It does, yeah. it, it, you know, you're ultimately, it seems like we're asking, you know, are we human beings who have stumbled upon these, I, I talked about this with Olivia Judson a few yeah. episodes ago, you know, that she's looking at major evolutionary transitions as being catalyzed by the, the creation of new energy sources. And so, you know, the industrial revolution in some sense looks like, 
we had all of the necessary precancerous mutations just mm. waiting for that blood sugar influx, <laughs> you know, that like suddenly we can set things on fire yeah. and, you know, yeah. suddenly we've got internal combustion. And so, yeah. you know, and, and then, but we're, we're preloaded with all of our like sugar obsession yeah. and, you know, the, yeah. this, this unilateral drive toward growth. But then what happens is like, the, I feel like the question that we're wrestling with now as a species is, are we a tumor that is, you know, the outer layer is alive, like all of the, the billionaires are yeah. fine, but they're, they're on a pile of skulls, yeah. you know, or are we an organism where, you know, where the, there is vasculature that gets into the core of the thing and it's not the growing edge, you know, but you get into these Buckminster Fuller questions about whether, you know, job creation is even the right right focus you know yeah. or is job specious and really what we're asking is you know just how do we provide for people yeah. you know it's like a value shift well, i like that way of looking at things uh, what i would say is that the issue is not jobs directly it's really access to the economy and jobs have been the primary means but only for two or three hundred years uh, in the middle ages uh, you might be apprenticed to some guild or you might be working for your family on a farm. There were quite a few jobs then, but now jobs are dominant. Uh, I were, I, maybe I'm a steel worker or, or maybe I've got a job interviewing people or whatever or figuring out what's going on in the economy. But these are all jobs. Uh, I what I would like to suggest, in fact, what you just said was that uh, we should look at the problem not of jobs but of access. And I think it's almost inevitable that there will be a basic income that had been suggested years ago by Milton Friedman, and uh, it will start in Scandinavia or Germany, uh, somewhat more progressive polities. Uh, the U.S. doesn't like the whole notion of giving something away, <laughs> but uh, like Social Security started here in the years ago, 70 or more years ago, um, I think uh, there will be solutions like that. There may be solutions. There will be a lot of jobs, I think, created. Uh, human beings doing something empathic with other human beings advising or just sitting with older people or teaching kindergarten um, maybe uh, being part of a police force or whatever where you have to really bring human skills I'd say there'd be a lot more of such jobs and they can be compensated but when there's enough to go around being made by machines that are largely autonomous need a little bit of care and attention. But largely autonomous, that's not clear to me why there, why we shouldn't have some sort of access to them. Let me put it this way. If there's a huge concert going on in Central Park in New York, whatever, Simon and Garfunkel, and the par and it's repeating every day, and it's there. Uh, sure, you can give out 
tickets and so on, but in the outer regions, why shouldn't people be able to take part in that or to listen to it? It doesn't cost very much to the rest of the people who are making money and having jobs. So I think it's pretty well inevitable that we will have to redefine how distribution works in the economy. The good news is that a lot of the services that are being um, developed or produced cost next to nothing. So you can have a mobile phone, a cell phone, and it costs very little, and sending messages cost very little, and emails cost next to nothing except a little bit of input of time and so on. So a large part of what we do in the economy in the future will have very low marginal costs. There might be an awful lot of public ownership or civic ownership of cars, and a car shows up at your door and takes you to the airport, and the marginal costs of that, because it's operating all day and night, uh, would be very low indeed, etc. So I'm not hopeless. I don't think this is freeloading. I think it's going to be a major regeneration of the economy, and I think it's going to take somewhere between 20 to 100 years probably 30 to 50 years for us to work out some new system. That's what it took in the Industrial Revolution from the 1850s to 1900s to make work bearable. Uh, and I think that's what it's taken in other uh, systems, such as mass production. comes along around 1900, 1910, but it's at least 1950, 1960, until it's taken for granted. You can own a car with very little effort and go wherever you please. So these things take decades. It's not a matter of Congress getting it. It's a matter of um, really experimentation and exploration and trying out different things and keeping an open mind. You know, it's stupid to call this socialism. It's actually just how we're going to organize ourselves as human beings. And we've managed, the, I think very good news is that all these technological changes we've had in the past, we've managed to adjust to their consequences. And I'm optimistic we will, by the way, with respect to climate change. Um, I think we're... This is just a conjecture, but I think that in the U.S. we're getting close to a tipping point uh, among the public from thinking climate change is not human-induced and not inevitable and not something you can do anything about to thinking about that it probably is human-induced and it can be mitigated. The technologies are largely there already, and with the kind of will that went in in the Second World War to defeating the Germans and defeating the Japanese, uh, anything like that amount of will would certainly be very effective in the U.S. or Europe or China as well. Here's my last question for you involves this time horizon that you're talking about, you know, because these previous uh, adjustments to major industrial 
changes. Mm -hmm. This happened in a world that was a much smaller population, much less well-connected population than it is now. And, you know, the, the, the rate at which an idea can spread mm -hmm. is, is obviously a greatly uh, accelerated from the way it was. But then there's also, there are other effects that you've, you know, you, you get into increasing returns and, and lock in sure. in your, in your other work and how, you know, suboptimal yeah. solutions can, mm. can, you know, dominate, uh, you know, a, a, a network like this. And I'm wondering, do you, do you see this largely as, uh, you know, cause I don't want it to take 50 years, you know, like I, I just had a kid. I'd like to make sure that she's not growing up in a world of the same anxieties that I'm growing up in. Yeah. It, do you see it as, as sort of limited by people's ability to accept a new way of, of thinking? And, and, and if so, you know, what are, what do you consider are probably the most uh, potent or empowering uh, tools for spreading a new way of seeing that that emphasizes the importance of mm -hmm. of the political dimension and of and of the distribution of resources well i i I tend to think that the limitation in all of these huge changes say realization that tobacco wasn't very good for our health the century before that, the end of slavery and so on. I think that public attitudes uh, are absolutely the key to making these large changes. Public attitudes are actually the key limitation. And with respect to climate, I think that's starting to change all over the world and uh, certainly from what I've seen in China. And certainly from what I've seen in Sweden, uh, I worked at the uh, Swedish Academy of Sciences in their climate group, the Bale Institute. Um, so the question really comes down to how could public opinion be changed? I don't know. I don't think government can do that much government tends to follow public opinion rather than lead it. And I, I'm not trying to be cynical here. Um, so I think what happens in general in the world is that some problem is perceived um, and then usually one or two events happen. So there's a problem perceived, say, in the United States in 1936 that things are getting a bit out of control in Europe and that the Japanese empire is expanding into the Pacific, maybe we should do something about it. But it's usually one or two triggering events, in that case Pearl Harbor. Immediately public opinion changed, and immediately the government followed. The government didn't quite change public opinion, it was sort of both things instantaneously. And immediately then, within 18 months, the US economy had completely changed to take care of what was going to be a lengthy war, and the resources were wheeled up. There's no amount of Al Gore's or people showing up or Greta Thunberg's. You know, these are all necessary people, and I salute them, but it's actually slowly, slowly, slowly 
people realize so we've had more hurricanes than we want california in the fall seems to be perpetually on fire i mean they give out where i work they give out gas masks uh, and so on do we really need this and finally there's i think a tipping point but usually it takes one or two major incidents and I don't wish uh, hor climate horrors on anybody, but I think, unfortunately, that's the way it's going to be. There'll be some horrible stuff happens, and suddenly public opinion will change. I was in this country um, a long time ago, in 1967, when the Vietnam War was raging. Uh, I was newly in the country, and everybody I talked to uh, supported the Vietnam War. One year later, hard to find anyone to, to support the Vietnam War. The Tet Offensive had happened. Robert McNamara and others had publicly come out against the war. So intellectual leadership suddenly was against the war. And the country flipped on a dime. After that, the war was still there. It had to be mopped up, but the will to fight it uh, disappeared and the will to do something about it uh, got very strong. So I have faith in America, I'm not commenting on whether this was good or bad for Vietnam or America. I'm just saying that once America decides it's had enough of something, it more, more quickly in other countries it flips. And similarly with the end of communism, I was in a hotel in Irkutsk, in uh, 1989 and my roommate in the hotel was a mathematician from East Germany and I said to him uh, this was in Soviet Union I said Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Poland have all gone over to a different system when do you think that will happen in East Germany will it happen he said oh yeah it'll happen he said September 1989. That will happen, he said. Uh, but not in my lifetime. But it will happen. And it was, I think it was two or three months later the Berlin Wall came down. So these things appear to me to be impossible and s s somehow there's a complete flip. It's not because we're all sheep. It's really because it's now safe <laughs> to <laughs> express a different opinion. So I think one day Mitch McConnell's... Uh, I'm an immigrant, so I should shut <laughs> One day I think, you know, Mitch McConnell or somebody's going to come out and say, hey, look, you know, we need to clean up this mess and uh, completely unembarrassed by having had the other opinion because suddenly it's safe to say so. So I guess when it comes to technological unemployment and, and basic income, the key is to just not be under the avalanche when the sand pile comes down, right? Like maybe, maybe you know, looking forward just a few years, like now's a good time to not be a truck driver. And then you might be able to, you know. Yeah, I think that uh, we're going to have to socially invent solutions. That's not generally done by governments. Sometimes they have a hand in it, but usually it's proposed by private citizens or politicians or doctors or, in the case of 
1850s suffragists and other people saying, you know, we need to treat shift workers much better. We need to look after their health. We need to mitigate the dangers of the workplace. These are proposed, make their way into the polity and they're discussed. It doesn't usually come from government. It could start in some small place. And many experiments are done and and then it appears totally obvious. And, you know, we've, we've been doing that all along. <laughs> in California, we've done that for 100 years. Maybe true, but, you know, you know an idea has arrived when other people are claiming that they've done this for decades themselves. Yeah, I'm sure the Santa Fe Institute will be out there in the streets claiming priority <laughs> when the day comes. Brian, it's it's been such a pleasure. This has been a, a fabulous conversation. I'm very grateful that I've had two whole oh, hours to sit down with you. Great. And superb questions. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. And I'm really glad uh, it wasn't just that you understood what I was saying. I was trying to understand <laughs> what you were saying in biology. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.